SABC News, independent and impartial. From an African perspective. In the headlines, Kenyan authorities have given the UN Refugee Agency a 14-day ultimatum to close one of the world's largest refugee camps. Around 60 migrants presumed dead after their boat caught fire off the Libyan coast and Myanmar releases hundreds of prisoners who had been arrested for protesting against last month's military coup. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Aman Musa, good morning. Kenyan authorities have given the UN Refugee Agency a 14-day ultimatum to close one of the world's largest refugee camps. This is according to a local newspaper, the Daily Nation. The newspaper reports that the government has threatened to forcibly repatriate Somali refugees living at Dadaab camp to the border if the deadline elapses. It also wants the UNHCR to shut down the Kakuma camp in the northwest. Kenya citing national security threats posed by some of the refugees that it says are linked to the Somali militant group Al-Shabaab. A rescue charity says that around 60 migrants are presumed dead after their boat caught fire off the Libyan coast last week. More than 100 people were traveling on the wooden boat in an attempted Mediterranean crossing. 45 people were rescued and five bodies were recovered. Survivors say the passengers were from many different countries, including Sudan, Syria and Egypt. Some experts say the South African government still has no concrete vaccine rollout plan and is still way off its target of vaccinating healthcare workers. This as the country heads towards a third wave of coronavirus infections. This is expected in Gauteng province in the next few months. 510 new coronavirus infections have been recorded in South Africa in the past 24-hour cycle, bringing the cumulative number of cases to 1 million 538,961. 55 more people have succumbed to COVID-19. This puts the national death toll at 52,251. Dr. Joe Barnes is a retired epidemiologist. Vaccines that are available are better at coping with, with the variants. But you know, this is the the slyest uh, virus you've ever come across, mm-hmm. and it just keeps on making more variants. So it will depend also on uh, on, on future variants. The one that's uh, uh, raging through Britain at the moment is 50% more contagious than the previous one. It's not only uh, what the vaccine can do, it also changes its habits and then it becomes more infective. So a lot of it we are fighting in the dark, so to speak. 
The European Commission is expected to give details today of proposed stuffer controls on COVID vaccine exports amid an ongoing row with AstraZeneca. Brussels has accused the company of breaching its contract with the EU. The BBC's Nick Bale reports. Commission sources insist their proposals would not amount to an export ban, but a means of better ensuring Europe gets a stable supply of shots. I understand that under the plans, every shipment set to leave the EU would be considered on key criteria. The vaccination rate of the destination country and how many jabs or components it itself is exporting. Officials would also look at how well the manufacturer is fulfilling its contract to the EU and check it's not only hitting targets by sending millions of doses right before deadlines. Authorities in Myanmar have released more than 600 people detained since the military coup last month. Most are thought to be university students. Opponents of the military regime have called for a nationwide silent strike today. The BBC's Nick Marsh reports. As they left Yangon's notorious insane prison on buses, several young activists gave the pro-democracy three-finger salute out the window. Why they were released today isn't clear, but it's likely that the hundreds who were let go will join today's so-called silent strike, with businesses urged to stay closed and people told to stay at home, as activists try to bring the country to a standstill. More than 2,800 people have been arrested since last month's coup, and some estimates put the death toll at more than 260. Recapping the top stories, Kenyan authorities have given the UN Refugee Agency a 14-day ultimatum to close one of the world's largest refugee camps. Around 60 migrants presumed dead after their boat caught fire off the Libyan coast and Myanmar releases hundreds of prisoners who had been arrested for protesting against last month's military coup. SABC News. Independent and impartial from an African perspective. African Dialogue, looking at different events in depth, discussing a variety of issues. What we see here is a clear violation of one, the right to privacy, of Tiwonge and uh, Stephen. The position of Greenpeace is that it's been a disappointing meeting. Eleven hundred hours Central African time. I thank you for joining us right here on Channel Africa. Indeed, it is South Africa's external service uh, into Sub-Saharan Africa. Thank you for joining us on DSTV Channel Eight Hundred Two on the audio bouquet and online. Uh, we are on www.channelafrica.co.za. Well, today we're going to be looking at uh, a lot of issues that are surrounding um, uh, the vaccination rollout campaign in South Africa. The opposition leader of the Democratic Alliance, uh, John Stenhazen, has called on President Cyril Ramaphosa to explain the rationale behind government sale of the AstraZeneca COVID-19 vaccines that arrived in the country last month. Over the past long weekend, Health Minister William Keyes announced that his department has concluded its deal with the African Union to purchase the one million doses of the vaccines. Stenhazen says government is already lagging in its vaccination campaign and the AstraZeneca uh, jabs could be have been utilized to vaccinate the elderly and those with uh, comorbidities in the lead up to the expected third wave 
of infections in the coming months. Well, to assist us this morning, we're going to be joined by Dr. Farid Abdullah, who is a director at the AIDS and TB research um, uh, space and at the Stebo, Steve B. Corrada Academic Hospital. And also we have uh, Professor Guy Richards, who is a critical care professor at Wits University. Let's take a quick break. We'll come back and uh, we'll uh, unpack the situation with them. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. What we want to achieve is a healthy and vibrant economy, which can ensure full employment to our people. The government concurs with the views of the Black Economic Empowerment Council report that it is now necessary to make our policies on Black Economic Empowerment more explicit. Last May, I asked constituencies at NETLEC to discuss youth employment incentives. I'm pleased that discussions have been concluded and that agreement has been reached on key principles. We are on an ambitious drive to industrialize, to attract investment, and to create more jobs for the youth of our country. They don't have jobs. Tried looking for a job for it's a year and a half now. The challenges were experience and the, the level of education which I have. Channel Africa. All right, I've just clarified uh, uh, Dr. Abdullah's uh, title there. That's uh, the title of uh, Director of the AIDS and TB Research Unit at the South African Medical Research Council. That's Dr. Farid Abdullah. We also have Professor Guy Richards joining us on our program. Let's start with you, Dr. Abdullah. Thank you for giving us your time here on our program. Benjamin, good morning and thank you for having me. There seems to have been some optimism as soon as we started to see um, the rollout campaign at the beginning of uh, the new year. It seemed like it was a moment whereby South Africa could see some form of relief. But in the last couple of days, there has been a resurgence of worry around the pace of the vaccination rollout, Dr. Abdullah. Um, What are your thoughts in terms of where we are currently with our vaccination rollout program? So uh, two thoughts, uh, uh, Benjamin, and then I'm sure that Professor Richards uh, will add. Um, But the first thought is that I think we would have been in a in a worse place if we did not start with the uh, rollout of the J&J vaccine. Um, and, and I think that, you know, um, we should count our lucky stars that between the Department of Health and the Medical Research Council, they came to a quick agreement uh, to roll out 500,000 doses to frontline health workers. Um, so, so let's just remember that um, mm, absolutely. The, the second thing is that um, this was always going to be a difficult task right um, to roll out to um, you know 67% of the population it's a difficult task in every country mm. um, and whenever you have a situation like that where there is urgency to reach 40 million people um and um, there is clearly trouble with the, uh, on the supply side, with the health service delivery, 
it's going to lead to a lot of different opinions on what to do, how to go about doing it. Um, and I think what will go a long way is if there is more clarity from the Department of Health about what would happen uh, once the 500,000 doses from the Medical Research Council you know, have been uh, uh, rolled out. Uh, what's the plan? What's the next step? Everybody mm. wants to know that. Mm. Uh, so let me stop there. I'm, I'm sure Prof. Richards wants to add to that. Prof. Richards, your insights? Yeah, thanks. Um, I, I think that the the first issue that uh, Fareed mentioned is absolutely critical in that uh, these J&J vaccines that we currently have access to were not ordered by the government. They were accessed through Glenda Gray at the Medical Research Council, which has been uh, an absolute godsend. And uh, as far as the accessing of other vaccines are are concerned and rolling it out to the community, you would look at it really uh, from the point of view that if you want to win the lotto, you actually have to buy a ticket. And and unfortunately, (laughs) it seems to me at the moment that um, we have no obvious plan in terms of buying or accessing. We don't see the evidence that these orders have actually been made. Possibly they have, and that would be wonderful if that's the case. But we can't even begin to think about rolling out until these vaccines start arriving in the country uh, in large numbers. And that's where our real problem currently arises. It's worrying hearing an expert such as yourself, Professor Richards, highlighting that particular uncertainty in terms of not understanding uh, a clear plan behind um, government's rationale because now there has been a politicization of the AstraZeneca um, vaccine. Uh, we've sold it to the African Union and it seems like everyone is asking why since uh, we could have utilized AstraZeneca to a certain extent and some people are arguing no, we should have not utilized it because there's still um, some worries around this particular vaccine. Um, when you look at the process of the uh, Johnson & Johnson vaccine um, uh, rollout, uh, uh, what are your thoughts when you um, contrast it with this debate uh, of the AstraZeneca issue? Well, it's difficult to, to sort of contrast the two because they're actually different vaccines. Having mm. said that, um, the idea was that that AstraZeneca vaccine would be administered or should have been administered to people most at risk. And that would be the elderly who will still wait for some time, elderly or comorbid disease, who are still going to wait for some time before they actually have access to any form of vaccine at all. Now, the issue there is that the study that was performed did not look or looked at a specific group of people, uh, young, uh, fit people without uh, significant comorbidities, and did not look at whether it protected against severe or uh, critical disease. In other words, your hospitalized patients Mm. uh, with COVID-19. So we don't know whether, in fact, it would protect against them. But given the fact that it's the same platform using an adenovirus vector, it almost certainly is going to have uh, a protective effect in terms of decreasing the severity of the disease, even if uh, it does not protect you from having a milder or moderate form of the disease. So I think that getting rid of it in the face of no other vaccines is a problem. If we had a large amount of 
proven, very effective vaccines, I would say, fine, it's not an issue. Uh, because then we could use the other ones where there is definite evidence that it would be of value in pre preventing severe disease. But we don't. And as I mentioned before, I haven't seen a definite plan as to when these vaccines are going to be arriving, um, such as the Pfizer one, which apparently we are going to be accessing, and definitely has evidence in terms of protecting, protecting against severe disease and hospitalization, mm. which other than stopping the disease entirely in its tracks, would obviously be the best outcome if you could stop people getting sick and dying. Um, Dr. Abdullah, let me bring it back to you. Um, what are your thoughts on this particular position that our government sits in right now? Could we have maybe created a dual system where maybe we vaccinated the elderly at the same time while um, um, vaccinating our um, medical experts. Um, I mean, we've seen that kind of approach in other countries. Why is our um, phasing of our um, rollout of these vaccines very stringent? So, uh, uh, Benjamin, if you uh, look back at all the other countries in the world, they actually did follow a similar approach um, uh, to ours, which means um, that they started with the health workers first. Mm. That's in the case of the U.S., in the case of Europe, and uh, the U.K., which is the best uh, sort of known, uh, uh, with a lot of detail there. And then they moved on to the um, high-risk groups with comorbidities and, um, and the elderly. And, you know, we are following the, the same approach. Um, except that, um, you know, we, uh, we don't, uh, have the details in the public domain on what the next step is. Mm -hmm. so I, I just want to say a few things about this and try to keep it simple. Sure. Um, the first is that, is that, um, you know, uh, we, we've, uh, we haven't reached half of the 500,000 doses rollout to health workers yet. Uh, that uh, we expect to be concluded by the end of April. A lot of people are concerned to say if it takes two months to reach 500,000 health workers, how long is it going to take to reach 40 million people? Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I just want to point out that that you can't make that comparison because um, the first 500 doses are under under what we call a, a, a 3B study trial conditions, um, and that will will go uh, uh, be rolled out more, more slowly. Whereas, you know, when the national rollout happens, it won't have those limitations and those restrictions, and it will be faster. So I just want people to be a little cautious about comparing what the rate now to what the rate could be in the future. Um, the second thing that's related to that is um, I think uh, the AstraZeneca dilemma would have been less of an issue if there was a clear statement that it has been re replaced with the additional Johnson & Johnson doses. Now, I have it on pretty good information that the government has secured uh, additional doses of the J&J vaccine, uh, but we haven't had you know, a very detailed announcement of that. And understand that, you know, um, it's already been mentioned that 11 million doses have been uh, agreed to. 
and um, even more doses are being discussed with J&J, um, especially as we have a production facility coming up in Port Elizabeth for the J&J vaccine. And I would encourage, encourage the Department of Health to just uh, allay the public fears and, and you know, provide a little more detail on the next steps. That will, that will take the pressure away from the AstraZeneca issue. I know that government has prepared 400 vaccination sites throughout the country. So the, the detail is there. And I do think that more could be done on the communication front. My own views on the AstraZeneca million doses is, you know, that's a difficult problem for anyone to figure out, right? Um, if we, if Professor Madi and his team had not done the study in South Africa, then we would probably be registering it, like we're registering Pfizer and, uh, you know, any other of the um, vaccines that, that will be used here. Uh, Pfizer's already been approved uh, by SAPRA as a regulator. And I'm, I guess uh, AstraZeneca would, uh, would have done the same, you know, um, if we hadn't. But the, the truth is that we have the results. And I think the only way to overcome a problem like that is to put all the scientists in a room, shut the doors for three days, and let them come out with an evidence-based policy recommendation. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and at the moment we have uh, this public spat, you know, about mm-hmm. AstraZeneca, and it's not going to solve the problem. Mm-hmm. It puts government in a difficult position to make a decision that kind of ignores the evidence. Mm-hmm. So if you compare with the the UK. And I'd be interested in what Professor Richard thinks of this. In the UK, they decided to to give everybody one dose of the vaccines they were using mm-hmm. instead of two doses. And they delayed the second dose to 12 weeks or longer thereafter. That was a very bold decision. It was slightly out of what was proposed in the trials for these vaccines. But the way to get a policy change like that is to get all the scientists in the room, sit down, go through a thorough process. There are ways to make these policies, and that's what's missing in this debate in South Africa. Instead, we have a public uh, spat, where, ironically, the people, the team that found low efficacy is saying we should use it, (laughs) and the people, you know, uh, 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 who were not involved in the study are saying, but the evidence shows shows the other way around, A bit of a long explanation, but Absolutely. I do think we need to get to the bottom of that, of that. Well, let me take a quick break and we'll come back to you, Professor Guy Richards, on your uh, views on uh, that view that was just brought by Dr. Abdullah. If you're just joining us now, we're joined by Dr. Farid Abdullah, who is from the South African Medical Research Council, and also Professor Guy Richards is with us, critical care professor at Wits University. It's 22 minutes past 11 o'clock Central African time. If you're just joining us now, we are discussing the vaccine rollout of COVID-19 in South Africa. Um, there seems to be more and more voices that are expressing uh, the slow pace of uh, the vaccination process in the country, especially now that it's still locked to uh, those who are working in the medical field. Um, there's still a lot of debate even happening, like was hi- highlighted by Dr. Abdullah in the, prior, in the public space, where scientists are differing on, on different views uh, regarding 
regarding various uh, vaccine and how to respond to that. But uh, we'll look at that issue with Professor Richards. I want to get his response after this break. Welcome to Change Your Game on Channel Africa, the African perspective. We are coming to you from Johannesburg, right here in South Africa. I'm Asanda Beda, your host. Change Your Game, the program that promotes open discussion and social dialogue as we highlight real issues in the African entrepreneurship ecosystem. Trevor Mumba now joins us in studio to talk about his entrepreneurial and personal journey. Welcome to Change Your Game, Trevor. Thank you so much. Um, it's an honor to be here. Palesa Mukubong, who's a designer. Welcome, Palesa, to Change Your Game. Thank you. Your role at the fourth annual Fashion Without Borders event? I just know that I need to arrive and, and, <laughs> okay. and do my part and do it really, really well. Yeah. Follow Channel Africa on these social media platforms. On Facebook, Channel Africa One. On Twitter, at Channel Africa One and YouTube on Channel Africa Radio. Our website, www.channelafrica.co.za. Channel Africa, from an African perspective. Channel Africa, South Africa's external service into sub-Saharan Africa. We're broadcasting from the SABC headquarters in Auckland Park, South Africa. We have the privilege of speaking to two uh, health experts today on our program. Very much of a worrying situation in South Africa, not to a point of total collapse, but there is certainly a spirit of uh, um, wanting to know more in the entire country around the uh, vaccine rollout process. We're joined by Dr. Farid Abdullah and we have Professor Guy Richards, uh, both of them helping us uh, to unpack this uh, particular topic. Uh, Professor Richards, there are a lot of concerns that uh, are in the space right now, as was highlighted by Dr. Abdullah, and that's the public arena whereby there's a lot of conversations happening around how we should respond to this situation. And what is worrying? What would have thought that by now, a year down the line, government would have had kind of an entrenched response with this particular issue, with collaborating with the experts such as yourself, the South African Medical Research Council, getting a real scientific uh, um, brain um, committee to really respond to these issues. Yeah, well, I think that that's probably the best way to do it. And I think that the experts in the country are... um Shabir Mahdi and Glenda Gray. Uh, and I think that they really are the ones that ought to be advising what should be done um, at this stage. The, uh, I think that the debate at this point with regard to the AstraZeneca vaccine is uh, futile. I, I agree with Fareed that it's um, of no value that people have a public spat about something which has already happened. Those vaccines are now gone. We've sold them. They've, they're gone. And there were only one million anyway. We need far larger uh, amounts uh, of vaccine, and it doesn't really matter which one we currently access. We need to get a vaccine, <clears throat> and the, uh, the best vaccine is whichever one happens to be available. So uh, I think we must stop worrying or debating about AstraZeneca and get on now and access uh, enough vaccines uh, of whichever one we can currently we can currently lay our hands on. Um, Fareed 
give me some gives me some hope in terms of uh, the fact that he has it on good information that we are going to get more of the Johnson and Johnson ones. But he also puts his finger right where um, it should be in terms of the fact that this has not been appropriately communicated with the public. Uh, or with healthcare workers in terms of giving us an indication as to when those will arrive. And he's quite correct that you cannot compare the rate of vaccination currently uh, with uh, what could occur if we actually now got a, got a proper rollout going as opposed to a clinical trial, which is the basis on which the, the healthcare workers are currently being vaccinated. Well, that brings us to the next question, which is in connection to reaching the herd immunity. And uh, that is something that uh, we are supposed to have some form of uh, anticipation, clear scientific deadlines on how we can achieve that and how we can also utilize uh, our procurement processes in order to determine uh, what we need to do to get herd immunity by a certain uh, day. Um, Professor Guy Richards, what, what are your thoughts on that process? So we're no longer really talking about herd immunity. We need to get enough people vaccinated to decrease the number of deaths uh, in the hospitals and the number of people being admitted to hospital. And the reason I say that is that because of the fact that we have already had mutation of this virus, okay. that we cannot say that we can, that once you've had the vaccine that you will not get infected. You still may get infected. So if a vaccine is 50% effective, for example, then in terms of contracting mild or moderate disease, then 50% of those people will still be susceptible. And they then still would be able to transmit the virus to other people. So the current aim is not so much achieving herd immunity, but decreasing the burden of severe illness and decreasing the number of deaths. With that said, do we still need some form of a timeline? Yeah, well, obviously, if we get a timeline, at least we can then uh, plan according to that timeline. I see that, for example, um, not that it affects multiple people, but we, we currently in South Africa are being restricted in terms of travel, that we're not allowed to uh, travel to other countries. Um, the majority of countries in the world, except for a couple of, uh, of countries like Pakistan and one or two others, because of the fact that people are worried about the variant which is most prominent in our country. Unfortunately, it was labeled the SA variant. Mm. And, um, and in fact, it's now in more than 40 countries in the world. And it certainly is very prevalent in the rest of Africa. Uh, I heard today uh, on 702 them mm. commenting that, in fact, it's not present in the U.S. and the U.K., but it actually is. Mm. Uh, and it's already present in a number of states uh, of the states in the United States. And given its increased transmissibility, it probably will also spread rapidly there as well. But what is important is that we do get ourselves enough people vaccinated to then decrease the transmission number mm -hmm. so that currently if each person infects one other, then you would say that the transmission number is one. If the transmission is greater than one, it means that we will start increasing the numbers again. So if we can decrease that number, we will decrease the number of infections overall. Although strict herd immunity might be more difficult, we certainly will decrease the amount of disease in the community. Mm. 
Dr. Abdullah, your thoughts? Um, this is an interesting new fact that I'm, I'm starting to understand because I thought what was trying to be achieved was this herd immunity. But I was also trying to make a, a colleague of mine who works in the medical field to understand that even if they are um, utilizing um, or they already have a vaccine, they must keep utilizing masks. Um, so th that and that person was asking, so why are we being vaccinated anyway? Because, you know, I'm, I'm supposed to feel protected as, as, a, as a nurse, you know. So there's so many factors that are involved with where we are right now. Yeah, so um, I've always been accused of, 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 of always agreeing with Professor Richards, and I'm going to do it again. Um, <laughs> So, so I think we have moved on from the idea of uh, herd immunity. And, you know, let me break it down for you mm. into some practical steps of what the strategy is, what's sure. undergirding the strategy. So um, the, if the priority are health workers, is health workers, then, um, you know, it means that, that uh, health workers... Um, Will not be um, will not be uh, sick and away from from work in large numbers as they were during the first and especially the second wave. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, you know, if we have our full complement of doctors and nurses, uh, that helps us to manage the epidemic. And you've got two very practical examples uh, talking to you right now. So both Professor Richardson mm -hmm. and myself have been vaccinated. Mm -hmm. You know, in my case, it was uh, 30 days ago, so I feel more protected. Mm. Uh, you know, I, I, um, although I'm at the MRC, I work at uh, Steve Biko Hospital uh, seeing uh, COVID patients. And, you know, when the third wave comes, I will feel a lot safer. I'll feel mm. a lot happier about spending more time in the hospital, uh, 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 you know, uh, be able to concentrate on patient care rather than wondering if I'm going to get infected. Uh, and, you know, Prof. Richards, I'm sure, has a similar experience. So that's really important. That's the, the strategy behind vaccinating health workers, so that they are there, they're, they're dealing with the, the patients, the public that needs their care. Um, the second group, as Prof. Richards has said, are those with comorbidities and the elderly, and these are the people who are filling hospital beds and filling our mortuaries and, you know, uh, filling graveyards, and the strategy is to decrease mortality. Um, uh, mm -hmm. Once again, that's a game changer. So we're no longer just worried about infections and herd immunity, but these are our deeper strategies to manage this epidemic. So take the example of schools, right? Um, you know, at schools there are 450,000 teachers. Um, they are in contact with young people especially in the high schools, who um, will have the infection, uh, will have mild disease, but they could infect the teachers, and it's, the teachers become, you know, the next priority group. I'm mm -hmm. um, using teachers as an example for frontline workers or people who leave home every day, go and work in a factory, um, but also protecting these groups, you know, protects uh, the normal functioning of society and our economic development. So... Um, these are now the objectives and the goals of the vaccine rollout uh, strategy, and that's why uh, it's important that we reach the, you know, the priority groups 
uh, with vaccination uh, uh, urgently. Um, but that's not enough because, um, as I, I, I use the example of school kids and teachers, yeah. the more people who are vaccinated, the less will be uh, the, the incidence of infections, and that also drives you know, infections in the more vulnerable groups. So these things all go together. But we're moving away from a simple idea that the plan is to vaccinate 67% of the population mm. and this epidemic will be snuffed out. And, and as Prof. Richard said, it's because we're learning more and more that this virus is mutating and herd immunity is a, a, a difficult concept when you have such a high level of mutations. But I think the strategy is right. It's the execution that needs to be uh, to follow, you know. Yeah. Thank you. Let me take a quick break and we'll wrap it up after this break. A lot of detail that's coming from both of our guests on where we currently are in South Africa with the, the vaccination rollout process. But something important that Dr. Farid Abdullah um, just uh, s- cited there was the issue of the fact that we are still anticipating the third wave of the coronavirus. What can we do in the lead up to that uh, so that uh, we are in a good place and I think that Dr. Uh, Abdullah highlighted a, a big area to prioritize our medical personnel would be a priority but we'll get more sentiments about our anticipation in South Africa for the third wave. You are listening to Channel Africa. This is African Dialogue, our program from Monday to Friday where we contextualize the big issues on the African uh, continent. Uh, we'll continue and wrap up up this conversation after this across the globe every second there's always a breaking story what we want to achieve is a healthy and vibrant economy which can ensure full employment to our people the government concurs with the views of the black economic empowerment council report that it is now necessary to make our policies on black economic empowerment more explicit. Last May, I asked constituencies at Netlec to discuss youth employment incentives. I'm pleased that discussions have been concluded and that agreement has been reached on key principles. We are on an ambitious drive to industrialize, to attract investment, and to create more jobs for the youth of our country. They don't have jobs. Tried looking for a job for it's a year and a half now. The challenges were experience and the, the level of education which I have. Channel Africa. For your latest update on the novel coronavirus for Channel Africa, I am Collins Nusa Atuhengwe in Lagos, Nigeria. Stay home if you feel unwell, if you have a fever, cough and difficulty in breathing, seek medical attention. But call in advance. Follow the directions of your local health authority. 
I have to say we are very, very lucky on our program to sometimes speak to the experts that we do. Um, they are worth a lot of money, I'm sure. Uh, if we had to consult and uh, offer them a few uh, shillings, they would, we wouldn't be able to afford them. But uh, we really appreciate these guests for giving us their insights and helping us, the community, to understand what's happening. And uh, today we have uh, the privilege of speaking to Dr. Farid Abdullah uh, from the South African Medical Research Council. He's a director at the AIDS and TB Research Unit and also a clinician at the Steve Biko Academic Hospital. Professor Guy Richards is also with us, critical care professor at Wits University. Let's wrap it up, gents. I know that I'm taking up too much of your time now. Professor Richards, um, we're anticipating the third wave of the coronavirus. Um, what needs to be done now? I'm sure the key areas, some of those sentiments that were brought forward by Dr. Abdullah. I don't see another way around it either than making sure that uh, we speed the process up and we prioritize uh, the key uh, target populations. Uh, yes. So this is, um, it's critically important at this stage that because we don't yet have vaccine, which will obviously, obviously be the optimal solution, please don't forget the non-pharmaceutical interventions. Mm. We're coming up to a, ho a holiday period. Um, we're coming up to Easter. There often are gatherings and parting, parties, etc., because it is a long weekend. Um, there will be religious services, etc., uh, all of which are potential super-spreading events. So people need to limit the number of people that are attending these events. They need to make sure that there is appropriate social distancing, and they need to wear masks until such time as they get that vaccine. And even then, as we've discussed already, masking, etc., is an important intervention that we would continue to utilize. And uh, unfortunately, utilizing masks, etc., is going to be an ongoing process, I would guess, for uh, another year, if not two, uh, in order to try and prevent further infection of people who are vulnerable. Mm. Dr. Abdullah, what are your final sentiments as, as we wrap up, as we anticipate the third wave as highlighted by uh, Professor Richard? Um, we are heading to Easter holidays and also there's a, a winter that is upon us. Yes, Easter is a scary thought. Um, when, when we were expecting the second wave, we thought it would come in January or February and it, it's sprung on us in Christmas uh, in, in many of the provinces. So, um, you know, uh, we really do need to to make sure that we, we do everything to keep safe during Easter uh, because we need the two months or one to two months in every province to prepare for the third wave. Uh, you know, get our hospitals ready, get our equipment ready, get our PPE ready, uh, get our, you know, everything ready to manage a third wave. Um, so, um, so yeah, so, so uh, uh, you know, once again, that is really our thought. Uh, remember to use the, uh, the mask and to social distance and to stay away from, from groups of people. Thank you. Thank you, James, for giving us your time. Thank you, Dr. Abdullah. Thank you, Professor Richards. We really appreciate you lending us your expertise. Thanks, Benjamin, and thanks, Farid. Cheers. Thanks. Cheers. 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 Bye.
Well, uh, that is uh, the big issue now that uh, we're going to be using these masks for a while. So my beauty face will not be seen for a long, long time. But uh, look, even those who are vaccinated, if you find yourself in a different country and you are being vaccinated already being vaccinated uh, just know that you have to continue using the mask social distancing still applies as difficult as that is a year down the line we have to follow those uh, non-scientific protocols but let's take a quick break uh, we still have our business news coming up and then we'll have our sports date remember at midday central african time we still have our english desk program we will get the latest news on what's happening on the continent in africa so do stay with us right here on channel africa across the globe every second there's always a breaking story what we want to achieve is a healthy and vibrant economy which can ensure full employment to our people. The government concurs with the views of the Black Economic Empowerment Council report that it is now necessary to make our policies on Black Economic Empowerment more explicit. Last May, I asked constituencies at Netlet to discuss youth employment incentives. I'm pleased that discussion have been concluded and that agreement has been reached on key principles. We are on an ambitious drive to industrialize, to attract investment and to create more jobs for the youth of our country. They don't have jobs. Tried looking for a job for a year and a half now. The challenges were experience and the, the level of education which I have. Channel Africa. All right, Nosithe Zuma, the wonderful Nosithe Zuma, I should say, is in uh, our studio. She's going to give us our business news. Thank you, Benjamin. Good morning. The COVID-19 crisis has hit a small and medium enterprises, especially hard, causing massive job losses in Namibia and other economic scars. Among these less noticeable but also serious is rising market power among dominant firms as they emerge even stronger while smaller rivals fall away. New research shows that key indicators of market power are on the rise, such as the markup of prices over marginal cost or the concentration of revenue among the four biggest players in the sector. Cargo haulage by Kenya Standard Gauge Railway faces another hurdle because containers that are double-stacked on wagons cannot be screened by scanners. Double-stacking of containers was seen as a solution after the port of Mombasa experienced a shortage of wagons. About 550 wagons were damaged by six giant cranes of the port last, last November. 
Zimbabwe boasts big earnings from tobacco each year, but these figures hid the true picture. Uh, growers are sinking in debt. The industry is not attracting new farmers, and the country is not earning as much as it should. According to the Tobacco Industry Marketing Board last year, Zimbabwe earned around 460 million U.S. dollars from 183 million kilograms of tobacco sold. But growers say this money is not all lending in the pockets of farmers. The implementation of the Lesotho Standards Institute is set to be further delayed as the Ministry of Trade and Industry has not been allocated any funds for its operationalization in the proposed 2021-2022 financial year budget following the LSIs launched by the Trade Ministry last August. It was expected that the LSI would be allocated funds in the 2021-2022 budget so that it would begin its work. The LSI was set up to develop and publish the national standards, testing and certification of various local products, as well as the conduct trainings on standards-related matters. And seen as the top challenger for Botswana's biggest bank, Absa Bank Botswana is seeing red with the bank warning shareholders that profit will fall on the back of increases in credit impairments. The second largest commercial bank on Thursday warned that consolidated year-end results for the year ended 31st December 2020 will be substantially lower than the results reported for the year ended 31 December 2019. The decline in profitability is a new territory for Absa Botswana, formerly Berkeley's Bank Botswana, which has been resilient over the years when local commercial banks' profitability was under pressure following the Bank of Botswana's moratorium on bank charges, which was implemented between 2014 and 2016, banning banks from raising bank fees during the period. And for your financial indicators, one US dollar is trading at 379.32 Nigerian Naira, 10.87 Botswana Bula, 109.11 Kenyan Shilling, and 22.01 Zambian Guacha. In BRICS currencies, the dollar is trading at 5.50 Brazilian Rule, 75.72 Russian Ruble, 72.57 Indian Rupee, 6.51 Chinese Yuan, and at 14.80 South African Rand. The US dollar is also trading at 72 pence to the British pound and at 84 cents to the euro. Looking at Commodities, gold is trading at $1,733 and platinum at $1,168 per ounce. While brand crude oil is at $60.90 a barrel. For Channel Africa, I'm Nusikhezum. Oh, well, let's move on now. Fila just uh, came in and he's going to give us our sports.
First up in our sports update, we begin with football news. South Africa's national senior football team, Bafana Bafana coach Muli Finzeki, wants, wants the players to repay the faith shown in them by the fans. For him, it's all about doing the country proud. Nzeki's plans have been thrown into disarray by European clubs refusing to release players. But also his preparations in terms of what to expect from Thursday's opponents, Ghana, Nzeki says they want to do well for the country. And we are all looking forward to better that position. And bettering that position, it means we have to qualify. We are not going to entertain better, bettering uh, our last position if we don't qualify. And I think it will be a, a very disappointment from all of us if we don't achieve the qualification first, if we don't achieve doing well in the AFCON. So um, as a team, as individuals, we have a buy-in into what we want to, to do with Bafana Bafana because uh, opportunity to coach and opportunity to, to play for Bafana Bafana comes once in your lifetime. And uh, I think uh, Ronwen and Tyson and the rest of the guys, one day they want to sit back and tell their children that when I was with Bafana Bafana, this is what I achieved. New Zealand government says athletes representing the country at the Tokyo Olympics later this year will be able to apply to be vaccinated against COVID-19 before they depart. Chris Hipkins, the minister responsible for New Zealand's responsible to the global health crisis, says people who would be eligible to jump the queue for the vaccine on compassionate grounds or to compete in events of national significance. The latter category would include Olympians, Paralympians and the national cricket team, who will be travelling to Britain to play India in the final of the ICC World Test Championship in June. The New Zealand team for the last Olympics in 2016 consisted of 199 athletes who competed in 20 sports in Rio de Janeiro and won 18 medals. The British and the Irish Lions tour to South Africa in July and August will go ahead as planned. A joint statement from the Lions and the South African rugby says they are aligned on South Africa as the venue for the tour this year. Contingency plans for a UK-based series or Australia as host have now been ruled out. The July-August tour had been in limbo for months due to the COVID-19 situation in South Africa. The Lions winter tour will almost certainly be without fans in South African stadiums because of COVID-19. On to cricket news. India women's cricket team beat South Africa by nine wickets in the third and the final T20 international. The dead rubber. India's left arm spinner Rajeshwari Gayakwad strangulated the South African batters with a measly spell in which she captured three wickets for only nine runs in four overs to set up a nine-wicket win. After the Rajeshwari show, openers Safali Vema, 60, and captain Smriti Mandana, 48, not out, guided India to victory with nine overs to spare at the Bharat Ratna Sri Atal Bihari Vajapaji Ekana Cricket Stadium in Lucknow. South Africa, however, won the three-match series 2-1. And finally, the Gambia National Olympic Committee, the GNOC, has fully funded and supported Gambia's participation for the Manchester Para Power Lifting World Cup. The decision is to ensure more Gambian athletes qualify for the Tokyo Paralympic Games set to take place later this year. The GNOC paid for the team's accommodation, tickets and allowance for the Manchester trip. Following a successful outing in February 2020, Gamo will once again compete in the Manchester 2021 Para Powerlifting World Cup to be held from the 25th to the 28th of March 2021. That's your sport news this hour.
All right, it's time for us to, to wrap up. I see our celebrity presenter has just uh, walked in. Uh, he's going to present to the Africa uh, Midday for you, giving you the latest news on what's happening. Do stay in there uh, right here on the Channel Africa. That's uh, www.channelafrica.co.za. That is where you can uh, uh, stream us live. And, and don't forget uh, that uh, you can also find us on DSTV Channel 802 on the audio bouquet. Don't forget our social media handles at channel africa one that is our twitter handle at channel africa one and our facebook page is simply titled channel africa from me benjamin mushatama until next time god bless